The presenters of the highly successful podcasting series, Philosophy Bites, Nigel Warburton and David Edmonds, talk about their experiences with podcasting in an academic environment. I thought we'd begin by asking you, what is podcasting? Well, technically, podcasting is making digital audio content that is then released with an RSS feed, which allows people to subscribe to a series of episodes. But actually, most people use the term podcasting now for any digital content delivered via the web. You do the Philosophy Bites series of podcasts. Where did the idea for this come from, and what is it? Well, I, I approached Nigel, I think, with the idea, because... I worked for the BBC and uh, I was finding it rather difficult to get philosophy commissioned on the BBC. I knew there was an enormous potential audience out there. Nigel had been very helpful with a book I'd been writing on Rousseau, so I knew Nigel slightly and I also knew Nigel had a website and I think you'd already started possibly podcasting one or two of your book, Philosophy of the Classics. Um, So I saw that he knew how to podcast. So I approached Nigel with this idea, and we've been going just over a year now, and we've already had two million downloads, I think. Basically, what we do is we interview philosophers. We try and get the best philosophers and focus on a single topic. And I ask pertinent questions, I hope. They give their responses, which are often much clearer than their written work, actually. David typically edits the podcast into a tighter format and does an introduction to each podcast. Each of the podcasts are very short. Was this intentional? They actually turn out much shorter than they begin because we probably record for each podcast about 35 minutes, 30, 35 minutes on average, and then they're ruthlessly edited down. And it was absolutely intentional. We didn't want them to run for much more than about 15 minutes. I mean, it's a very crowded media market out there. People just don't have the time for it. And actually, they work very well at just that length, I think. And we've had one or two that have gone over 20, and we've had one or two that have gone under 10. But broadly speaking, once we've edited out stuff we think is superfluous to the sort of main argument, they come out very nicely at 12, 13, 14 minutes. I think it's really important not to bore people. I hope this isn't boring anyone, but (laughs) if you've got a voice droning on in the background and you're doing something else, at a certain point most of us will start doing the other thing and stop listening. That's one of the other good things about doing a dialogue. It's not just one person's voice relentlessly. It's not a monologue, so we get a chance to wake people up with it, somebody cutting into the question or somebody else's voice appearing there. Does that work because each of the topics are very specific? Yes. I mean, because we're only ending up with 15 minutes or so, you can't, for example, we just done an interview this morning on... Kant's metaphysics. Now that was incredibly ambitious. We're not normally that ambitious. But the idea of covering the whole of Kant, for example, in 15 minutes would have been utterly ludicrous. And the guy we just did, Professor Adrian Moore, uh, was superb at summarising Kant's metaphysics. And it probably will come down to 15, 20 minutes or so. But necessarily, you have to focus in on one topic if you're going to try and condense it into that limited time period. But the topic we just interviewed Adrian Moore about, that could have been a lecture series. In most universities, that would have been two hours a week, relentlessly for a whole term. And obviously, we're not trying to do that with the podcast. What we're trying to do is get to the core, the essence of the topic, and communicate through the voice some of the 
interviewees' enthusiasm for the subject, a real sense of what's important and what's, what's less important in that topic. But we don't want to turn into something like the National Theatre of Brent, caricaturing Kant in ten minutes as if you've really understood everything there is to understand about Kant in ten minutes. That's not the point of it. It's really to infuse the listener, to give them an overview, and maybe go into detail on a few things, to really to get a sense of what's important about the topic. And in some cases, we can go into quite a lot of depth in, in 10 or 15 minutes. It's surprising how, if somebody takes the trouble to speak clearly, not use jargon, really think clearly, you can go right into a subject. Some of our best ones have been, I think, they've been as communicative about the topic as an hour lecture, public lecture, might have been if it hadn't been thought out so well. We'd like to think that although they are short, they're also rigorous to a degree and one test of that is I think without exception every single one of the academics we've interviewed and we've interviewed a huge array of top philosophers every single one of them I think it's fair to say has been happy with the end result. Dave's too modest to say this probably but actually it's more than that what we get is after we send somebody the link to the completed podcast we usually get back an email saying that was amazing, that was actually a lot better than I imagined it could have been. Your editing must have been superb. How did you turn what I said into such a coherent, clear exposition of the topic? So we've had a very, very positive feedback from the contributors in that respect. So how much work is involved in the editing? There's a lot more work than anybody could possibly imagine in the editing. This is what I do professionally, so I spend a lot of time editing in any case. But even me, it takes me quite a long time to edit each one of these podcasts. And in the few times when I've edited, just to give an example, I was editing one last night, to edit five minutes of finished podcast, which isn't a complete podcast, it took me three hours. So to do a 15 minutes at that rate, you know, that's nine hours. It depends on the interviewee as to how easy it is to do it. But David's a much faster worker than me, but I'm, I would say... Each podcast is a day's work and editing, I suspect. So to devote so much time to them, you have to think that the project you're doing is worthwhile. Who's the audience for it? Well, I mean, we get a lot out of it. It's partly a democratic project, so it's partly bringing philosophy to anybody who wants to hear it all around the world. And we get emails now from literally all around the world. So it's partly a slightly philanthropic project. Obviously, Nigel's a professional philosopher. For me, it's a hobby, but it's a passion for both of us. And for both of us, it's a free seminar each week. So every week, we interview somebody very clever about their area of expertise, and we get a one-to-one, or rather a one-to-two free seminar. So those are the sort of motivations behind it. You mentioned that you've got emails from people. One of the interesting things about the experience we've had doing this podcast is quite how many emails we've got. And I think part of that is to do with the fact that people out there recognise that it's a gift, that we're doing this as a hobby, we're not being paid for it. And they're much more grateful than they would be, let's say, if they heard a BBC programme, where they know that the people making the programmes are being paid. We get many more emails for Philosophy Bites than I do for my BBC programmes which are going out to a much broader audience. And it's also to do with the fact, I think, that it's a much more personal medium. So our listeners think they've got some kind of personal stake in Philosophy Bites, which they don't when they're listening to 
BBC radio programme or watching a television programme, for example. Oh, it's quite, quite strange because some people will have listened to maybe 70 episodes of me talking in conversationally with, with somebody else. They know my voice very well, they get a sense of my character, they feel that they know me in a way that if I've been just writing a book, not so much is revealed in the process of writing a book necessarily, unless it's incredibly autobiographical. Here you cannot disguise your voice, you can sometimes reveal things about what you think about what somebody said. Inadvertently, you can, by the tone of your question or, or by the delay in coming back with another question, you betray certain things. And so people get a real rounder sense of us as people, I think, than they would from just the written word. You asked about the motivation earlier, and I think I hadn't expected this, but there is actually something quite nice about being in the position of being a gift giver. So it feels really good to be able to do something that people obviously value in their lives. We get emails that say, I've got a long car journey into work in Sydney every day. I've got a, a very demanding job. I don't have time to read very much. I love philosophy. You've kept my interest alive. Or I'm a 78-year-old retired academic. I listen to your podcast every week. It's the intellectual stimulation that I really need. Because there are all these really interesting glimpses of other people's lives that you're mildly affecting by doing something in a little room, you know, which seems very private, having a conversation with someone, it's amazing. So would you say that this personalisation on the part of the audience and the interviewer is why podcasts continue to be a success? Yes, to date, I think what we're going to see pretty soon is the merger of all these forms of media. So the idea that radio will be different from a podcast is already beginning to break down because already we can listen again on radio programmes and download radio programmes. So now it's just all production and all programming made from somewhere, going out to the rest of the world. And these barriers between podcasting and official scheduling, as it were, are breaking down. We'll be able very soon to listen and watch whatever we want, whenever we want. They call it martini media. But I think there are different things going on here. From the point of view of creators like us, we're creating content. It's an amazing liberation to be able to purchase equipment that's relatively cheap, go out and do whatever we want, edit it however we want, and put it out to the world. doesn't mean we're going to get listeners. Actually, we've had nearly 2 million downloads to date, so we have a lot of listeners. It's completely in our control what we do. We're not answering to a radio station or anything like that. So that's one aspect of it. From the listener's point of view, podcasting is a real success, partly because it's free on the whole. Podcasts are almost always free, mostly delivered via iTunes, actually. That's a big source of listeners for us, although we do have a website which um, people can download from too. But because it's free and easy to locate through um, internet searches, we've provided what people want. I mean, people are specifically looking, some people are specifically looking for audio philosophy programmes, and they can find them, and we can provide them, and it's a wonderful way of putting two sorts of people in contact with each other via audio media. Podcasting has one other big advantage over, to date, traditional media, and that is if you make a radio programme and let's say you've got a 15-minute slot, in practice that means it's got to be 12 minutes and 50 seconds, leaving 2 minutes 20 seconds for continuity announcements and the weather or whatever. A podcast can be as long as it deserves to be. So that is extremely liberating. 
you don't have to do what you do in traditional media, which is edit down to an absolute, determined, rigid length. Our podcasts are as long as they should be. Often in radio or TV, you end up either padding programmes to longer than they ought to be, or cutting them back to shorter than they really had to be, because you had to squeeze them in to this particular time slot. I think people use podcasts very effectively in terms of dead time for them, like travelling time, an underground train or on a bus or a long car journey, short car journey, on the way to work, picking kids up. People are using those moments which were otherwise not available to them intellectually to widen their horizons through podcasts. So I think it's something about the flexibility of the, of the user's end which makes it so easy to put things onto your iPod but it's part of the success story. Though actually we find quite a few people are listening through their computers as well. They might be in their lunch hour listening at work, possibly. I think there's also something quite nice. We talked about a gift. When you download something, it becomes yours in a sense. It's not just like turning a radio on. You can actually carry it around with you. So I think people really like that, the fact that they can have all 70 episodes of this series on their MP3 player and can pick the um, topic they're most interested in that day. It's really their thing. It's, it's like owning a book, almost. I mean, one other thing about it is that there's so much stuff out there now, because we, we're all producers now, we can all be producers, that actually, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it properly, because you're competing with zillions of different people attempting to do the same thing. Even in the philosophy category of iTunes, there are now many competitors. And so... You have to raise your game. You have to call professionally, edit professionally, question professionally. It has to be a professional operation because in competition with this plethora of other podcasts, you've somehow got to be noticed and provide something different. I don't know if I agree entirely with that because there is a kind of punk podcasting that goes on as well, kind of gritty, who cares about the audio quality, just go for the content. And if somebody's absolutely compelling as a speaker, that'll come through anyway. Um, so it, I don't think it has to be high-tech, beautifully edited. I mean, just it's nice if you can achieve that. And obviously people will be happier with that. But there is also the sense that if you've got a message you want to get across, people will listen, even if you've recorded with the inbuilt microphone on your computer. But lots of people can be gritty and discursive and edgy and so on. When there's so much stuff out there, you have to be gritty, discursive, edgy, and has to be high quality to beat those other guys. Well, I think you've revealed your secrets in a way, David, because you've admitted now that there's a lot of editing that goes on behind the scenes. People would like to think that we're so fluent as interviewers or speakers, we never fluff a line. Um, you know, this must be all recorded as live when we do an interview, but it obviously isn't. But some people don't quite get that. They leave all the stuttering and um, ums and ahs and awkward silences in the finished product. Although it can be tolerable in ordinary situations face-to-face, it isn't really tolerable when you're listening through headphones with a limited amount of time. Um, well, um, we'll see um, how many ums end up in this interview. Uh, you mentioned that it's been difficult to get programmes on philosophy commissioned by the BBC. It's obvious from your series that there's a market out there. So is this going to trickle back into the commercial media producers? Well, that's a very interesting question. And you use the word market. Well, the market normally works with some kind of monetary value. And we've been doing all these as a hobby, and we haven't been selling them, we've been giving them away. 
So in that sense, we haven't necessarily established the market, nor have we gone out looking for a market. What we've established is there's a huge demand. I have no idea whether traditional broadcasters might look at us and think, philosophy is really popular, maybe we should be doing that. Or alternatively, they might think, what's the point of us doing philosophy? There's already a philosophy podcast out there. We can't possibly compete with them because they're doing philosophy every week and we just don't have room in our schedules to do philosophy every single week. So we'll wait and see. I mean, it is true that we um, were commissioned by the Open University. I work for the Open University. We were commissioned by the Open University to make ethics points, which was a series of 14 programmes specifically on ethics, completely in the style of philosophy points. So we have done commissioned work, and that was delivered via Open2.net, which is a, an Open University website. So it's not that we've never had any commercial aspect to this, but for the most part, we're actually subsidising this massively <laughs> at the moment. And I suspect that although there are commercial uses of podcasts, the convention, which I think has been part of the success of podcasting, is to give them away. And when you start charging for podcasts, that will change the relationship with the listener substantially. And I think many of the things that we value could be lost in that world. The standard model that podcasters who make money from their podcasting use, I believe, is advertising. So that would be piggybacking on the success of a podcast. You have a very successful podcast, advertisers come to you and several have to us. And if you like what's being advertised and want to put that on your show, that may be a way of doing it. But I don't think I don't think this is going to be a route to for most people to selling audio content. I don't think it's a market in that sense. And actually in the academic world I think it would be foolish to go down that route because I think what you have with what's emerged as the conventions of podcasting is a fantastic way of reaching a worldwide audience who are interested in learning things or interested in finding out about different subjects, academic subjects. And it would be crazy to start charging people for that content because you're going to alienate many of the people who would most benefit from what you have to offer. Yeah, for academics, they're shop windows. They're stores. They're saying, you know, Look what we have to offer. Here are the people we've got at this university. They're lost leaders, if you if you like. It's advertising, very effective form of advertising. But I think it's more than advertising as well, because a lot of academics, I mean, I think it's true of us as well, that have a kind of idealistic aspect that think these are important things that should be discussed. People should hear them. It's not about a financial transaction. I would like my message to get out to a wider public, and it's important that people get an opportunity to hear this. And many of the people who listen couldn't afford to go to university, couldn't afford to take their studies further through things like iTunes U. There's a massive amount of really high-quality content available to somebody who can navigate it and screen what's good and bad and what's appropriate and not appropriate. And I think what's going to emerge soon are aggregators, people who look at what's best on the net, well, it's best on podcasting, find a way of channeling it and saying, look, this is my client, Mark. I'm saying that there are these ten great lectures on this topic which you might want to listen to if you're interested in Kant. Not, there are 10,000 lectures. Take your pick. I imagine if you started charging, the interviewers, particularly academics, would be reluctant to participate. How enthusiastic have your participants been? I actually think academics are so poorly paid in the UK that many of them, if they thought we were being paid for selling the podcasts, would be quite happy to take a cut of that um, in return for a short interview. 
But that's not why they're doing it. It's a bonus if they get paid something. And to answer your question directly, we've had only one or two who've said no. And pretty much everybody's agreed to talk to us. Everybody's, I think, enjoyed the experience. And now, if you are a professional philosopher and you look at our past interviewees, it's a list that any philosopher would be proud to be a part of. And I suspect if I wasn't doing the interviews, I'd be really worried that I hadn't heard from us. Well, what would you say is next for podcasting and delivering exciting, engaging content over the internet? I think one of the things that is going to happen is that there's going to be increasing stratification. So that at the moment, you might get, I don't know, a site doing science and that will soon become a site just focusing on chemistry, and then that will become a site just focusing on those who are obsessed with the structure of the molecule or whatever. So increasing narrowness so that people who want to focus on one aspect of a subject know exactly where to go. I mean, I hope there'll still be room for people like us who cover a broader spectrum, but even we, of course, have built an audience just by focusing on philosophy, which to most people is a fairly esoteric subject. On a more technical note, one thing that many academics in the States are using is the MP4A, a so-called enhanced podcast, which is basically a podcast which embeds PowerPoint slides, which change at the appropriate moment. So if somebody's giving a lecture with PowerPoints, when you download the file, you get the PowerPoints with the audio which is a very effective tool for many kinds of educational situations. That's one thing that's definitely happening already. I'm not such a fan of most video podcasting, which is obviously another thing which is becoming easier to do. For me, the pure audio medium is a fantastic way of delivering philosophy. And this is how it started with Socrates. Socrates asking people difficult questions face-to-face, refusing to write anything down, because he thought the weakness of the written word was it couldn't answer back. You couldn't actually clarify, and, and it's open to being misinterpreted, whereas emphases, certain kind of interaction, can deliver much more serious engagement with ideas. And that's where philosophy started. I'm not saying it has to end there, and, and obviously I'm a fan of the written word too. But these are exciting times for philosophy because the, the spoken word can genuinely get back into philosophy with a wide audience, a wider audience than it's ever been possible to have for the spoken word before. David Edmonds, Nigel Walton, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.